Matthew chapter 9, we're going to pick up at verse 9. Here we go. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, two words, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now let's go over to Luke chapter 5 and see what Luke says about this encounter. By the way, Luke wasn't an eyewitness. Matthew was. Luke is doing it from the perspective of Paul and other apostles who were eyewitnesses. Let's see what Luke wrote down. Luke chapter 5, we're going to pick up verse 27. After these things, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. Another name for tax collector is publican. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Saw a publican named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And while you're standing, I'm going to read this. You don't have to turn there. This is uh, when, when Peter professes Jesus as the Christ. They're up at Caesarea Philippi in, in the northern part of Israel. And Jesus turns to the disciples, he says, who do men say that I am? And some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, some say, he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. At that moment, Matthew 16, Matthew writes this down. He's the only one who writes this down. Uh, the other authors have the first two verses, but the last portion only Matthew records. I'll read it to you. Jesus answered and said to Simon, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And, and Matthew adds this next sentence that nobody else has. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's check this out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gathering. We thank you, God, that you love sinners like us. You've come to call us to repentance, to change, that we agree that there's a God who governs in the affairs of men and we're accountable to you. It's that simple. We didn't create ourselves. As our founders said, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator. We recognize your, your presence. And so, Lord, through your word, I pray that you'd minister to our hearts. Lord, shake us up. Lord, set us on a direction that blesses you. And Holy Spirit, you're tender, and the way you work is always precious. So I pray that you'd move in the hearts of men, including my own, that you'd do a work today that would bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Please. Thank you. So here you have this guy, and, and Matthew calls himself by name. He's, he's giving the own account, his own account, his own eyewitness account. And he said, Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me, two words, follow me. It's, it's current progressive and continuing progressive. Keep following me and, and follow me now. And, and, and he rose and he followed him. 
And then Matthew humbly says it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house. He didn't say his house. He didn't say anything like that. But actually what occurred according to Luke is Luke says there was this guy who was a publican and his name was Levi. He doesn't use his new name, Matthew. He uses Levi to point out that he is more than likely what would be considered a renegade priest of the Levitical order. And the reason why scholars believe him to be a renegade priest of the Levitical order is, first of all, he's working for the Romans. He's handling money. He's handling taxes. He does it on the Sabbath because that's a big day for commerce. And, and he, he, you know, tax collectors, publicans were of the, um, uh, what they call the equestrian portion of Roman society. It was, it was upper middle class and it was, it was a, a place reserved for government officials. These are folks that, that found their income, much like you, you saw with Jeff, from the government. Uh, it's a job. And, uh, and so this is where he was. He was upper middle class. He was considered aristocracy. And he worked for the Roman government. And it was a very lucrative job. And, and we find out that he's the chief tax collector in a town called Jericho. We're going to go to Israel in 2017, November 2017. If you didn't get a chance or you want to do it again, we're going then. And Jericho is one of the oldest cities in the world, and it's a trade route. That's why. So they would place a tax collector in a trade route, and they'd have an axle tax. They'd have a property tax. They'd have a, a wine tax. They'd have a beast of burden tax. They'd have a tax, 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 tax on everything. Not unlike today, right? Did you know that gasoline in California is more expensive than it is in Hawaii? Yeah, isn't that amazing? I did, last time I checked, I didn't see oil being produced in Hawaii. They've got to boat it in, and ours is still more expensive. But we still need a half-cent sales tax because apparently there's not enough money, <laughs> even though we have gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. <laughs> Where were we? Blame it on Matthew. It's his fault. He's a tax collector. Made me think about it. I like what uh, this person wrote. What's the difference between a tax collector and a Rottweiler? A Rottweiler eventually lets go. <laughs> Farmer's Almanac says, if Patrick Henry thought that taxation without representation was bad, he should see how bad it is with representation. <laughs> and this was accredited to Albert Einstein. I haven't had a chance to prove it to be true. Uh, it's a quote I got off the internet. And, and I, I, I remember the quote from Abraham Lincoln on the internet. You can't believe everything you read on the internet, Abraham Lincoln. So I, <laughs> I'm not sure, but apparently... Albert Einstein said the hardest thing in the world to understand is the income tax. And if you think about the income tax, the Gettysburg Address is 269 words. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth in this constitution, right? 269 words. The Declaration of Independence, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by the creator of certain inalienable rights. That's only 1,337 words. And, And the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 773,000 words. The tax law has grown from 11,400 words in 1913 to over 7 million words today. And of course, we have a green government. We want green. And, and, and the IRS sends out 8 billion pages of forms and instructions each year. If they were laid end to end, they would stretch 28 times around the earth. You go, well, that's a lot of paper. Yeah, 300,000 trees are cut down yearly to produce the paper that the IRS forms that are produced by the forms and the instructions. 300,000 trees a year. The IRS employs, and I, Jeff, you're going to appreciate this, the IRS employs 114,000 people, twice as many as the CIA, and five times more than the FBI. <laughs> and they have guns, too. <laughs> Let's just throw that out there. 
And for those of you who still have sympathy for Levi, the tax collector, Matthew, the tax collector, let me just share this with you. Taxes today in every, every family, and I'm not just talking income tax, I'm talking about your gas tax, your sales tax, your, you, there's taxes, you get tax. And by the way, you, you pay fees, and you go, well, that's a fee, that's not a tax. No, that's a tax. And they just call it a fee. And there's the, the, the Tolstoy novel that we're getting on November 8th. There's, they've got a whole bunch for you there. And, you, and they, they think you're stupid enough to say, sure, take more. Don't be. Taxes eat up 41.2% of the average family's income. That's more than food, clothing, and shelter combined. That's a burden on the American family. And we're still $19 trillion in debt. So my point is, I don't like Matthew. Let's pray and go home. Government's necessary. God ordained it in the Noahic Covenant. There's three governments that God recognizes. The government of the family, the government of the church, the government, the civil government. And we, we don't see these things. And here you have Matthew who is neck deep in civil government. He's of the equestrian class in, 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 in the strata of Roman society. He's an aristocracy. Lower aristocracy, but aristocracy nevertheless. And he comes out of the Levitical priesthood. So he is a very religious man. To hold a position of tax collector, to hold a position of tax collector for the Roman government, you had to speak Aramaic, you had to speak Greek, and you had to speak Latin. He also speaks Hebrew. The reason why I know he speaks Hebrew is because he references the Old Testament 99 times in his gospel account. That's more than all other gospel uh, writers combined. And 38 times uh, in, in, in his gospel, he begins with Old Testament sayings so that it might be fulfilled, which means he has a working knowledge of the, of the Old Testament and that this is a messianic prophecy so that it might be fulfilled. 38 times. No other author does that like Matthew does. He is a Levitical priest, most, most scholars believe, and he's renegade. He grew up in the church. He grew up with you know, the Sadducees and Pharisees, and he grew up with the legalists, and he just got burned out. He, he'd be the equivalent of a PK kid, a pastor's kid. You know, they get to see the, the private side of dad. And that's why most of them don't have anything to do with the church. Thank God my kids still attend. I've done everything to stop them from that <laughs> in my personal life, but they, they've managed to see my frailty and, and the honesty of it. And, and they do appreciate that they see frailty in their dad. And, and, but the problem is, we tend to hide our frailty and dress up and pretend to be something in public that we aren't in private, and that's usually what burns kids out. They just go, Dad, you're a knucklehead in the pulpit and also at home. We're good with that. And, and, and you, you tend to, you know, you, you hear them on the radio and things of that sort. You tend to see how it manifests itself where you walk around, you know, and praise God, and you carry out God. Three letters that have 18 syllables. Hey, and and this is this is what Matthew grew up with. Actually, Levi, he grew up with it. And and when Luke and Paul and the other apostles see him in in the account in Mark, where we see him calling um, Matthew, uh, Mark's account and the same as Luke's account, both of them call him a publican, a tax collector, despised by the Jews, hated by the Jews, not just by the Jews. They were hated by other nations also. The way they worked is, it was a 10%, you, you, had, you had a bridge tax, you had a transport tax, you had an axle tax, you had a beast of burden tax, you had a property tax, you had a wine tax, you had a, a crop tax, you had tax to tax, all. 
And, and the Romans would assess, they would level that tax, they would levy, excuse me, they would levy that tax, and the tax collector would hold the position in Jericho that when it would come through the crossroads of this, this um, trade route, he would have the Roman soldiers behind him, he would levy the Romans' portion of the tax, and then his profit, his salary, would come by adding a couple more percentage points to it, and he would clean up. He'd make a fortune on them. It was a place where you made a fortune. And I'll just give you an example. In the, in the government sector, as opposed to the private sector, government workers are paid more for the same work that's being done in the private sector. They have better benefits. They have, we lost 1,200 jobs in, in Ventura County in August. 500 were, were white-collar salary jobs. We lost them in Ventura County. We added, though, 1,000 jobs, but 900 of those jobs were government jobs. Now, we do need government, but government doesn't create wealth. It only divides it, and it also is a drain on those that are paying the taxes. Uh, we're already at 40% of our income, and, and after a while, you're just paying for an aristocracy to, to run the masses. But in America, we have this idea of freedom and liberty. And so here, this is somebody that you, you need a tax collector, you need government, but you also despise government at times, especially when you get your paycheck, Right? You open that up and you go, what happened? And, and, and this is Matthew. And the Jews despised him because he betrayed, and he's, he's standing for the Roman government. The Romans had their boot on the neck of every Jew. The Romans had conquered in the known world. You had the Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome. And peace just came through fire superiority, and they just subjected every culture to Roman authority. And here you have a guy that's abandoned the, the Jewish religious system to sit in Jericho at the tax office and, and just milk his own people of their hard-earned money. And the Romans didn't like him either. He was, in, he was a nomad. The Romans didn't like him because he, he, he could be bought with a price, and they were always suspect of somebody who would betray their own people. So here he has a position of authority, but he's disliked on both ends. And that's Matthew. And when Luke and when Mark speak of him, they call him a publican. And that is a despised term. Luke and Matthew make a point of saying he is a tax collector, he's a publican. And they're disgusted by it. They're disgusted by it. And all the disciples that Jesus called, they all saw Matthew for who he was. They saw him for his past. But you know what Matthew says? Both Luke and Mark say that he, he, he followed Jesus when Jesus said, follow me, and he left everything, Luke says. One thing he didn't leave when he followed Jesus was his pen. And, and taking his pen, he wrote accounts from an eyewitness version, being probably somebody who could not only run a ledger but could do shorthand. We have two miracles not listed anywhere else in the scripture that, that Matthew points out. One was obviously the coin in the fish's mouth. A tax collector would be like, oh yeah, I remember that. Money? Sure, yeah, yeah. There are 10 parables we find in Matthew we don't find in any other gospel account. There's nine discourses that Jesus has that, that we don't find in any other account in the gospels. And there's six incidences that, that Matthew notes. And actually, our understanding in the Garden of Gethsemane is the Roman snake, the, the winding fiery serpent descends to apprehend Jesus and then go to beat him. And, and what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, we take all of that from Matthew's account. He knew Roman soldiers. He knew about the tomb. He knew when they, they fell back, when Jesus' name was revealed. They were stunned by that. And Matthew gives us that account because he carried his pen. He walked away from everything except his pen. 
And Matthew says this. He says, yeah, Luke calls me a publican. Mark calls me a publican. The disciples call me publican. They, they speak of me with my past. But when Matthew gives an account when Jesus called him, this is what Matthew says. He says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. He saw a man. And when he said he saw a man, he said his name was Matthew. Everyone else calls him Levi, betrayer, abandoner of the Jewish faith. Jesus calls him Matthew, which means gift of God. He gave him that name. And Matthew says, when Jesus saw me, he saw a man. He saw a man who he gave a a new name to. I want to stop for a minute because the two conversations I said previous really had an enormous effect on me. And I had a neat talk last night with Bishop Roderick Huggins and I've had some people concerned I spend time with him. There's people who are concerned he spends time with me. Matter of fact, when he endorsed me in the assembly campaign, he got a death threat. As though somehow a man who, who feels as though what Colin Kaepernick did in the, in the games and not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance and, and Bishop Huggins takes a position, well, at least causes us to talk about racial relations and and, and a lot of us, well, you know, especially if we're veterans and we see him sitting in front of these Marines and the like. And then, then the idea, what am I doing associating with Bishop Huggins? A lot of people wonder, Sandy, you're LDS, right? And proud of it, amen? People wonder, what are you doing with her? Why are you endorsing her? Because she's my friend. She's going to do a great job. Angie doesn't even hold the same party I do. She's amazing. And people look and say, well, wait a minute. Those aren't your people. I'm sorry, what? When Jesus looked at me, he saw a man. He saw a man. And I guess the part that bums me out is that when Matthew wrote In the next chapter, he listed the disciples and he was so affected by the way the other disciples spoke of him that when he listed his own name, he wrote this down. He says, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. He's the only one who gives himself a title. He says, I'm the publican. That's what they call me. I might as well put my title in there. But Jesus saw a man. And then he would write, as we heard in Matthew 16, up at Caesarea Philippi, when the other disciples leave that out, Matthew leaves it in. And I was so touched by this because the person I sat with, his his name is Brad, and and he was a co-author of a book called The Shack. Have you heard it? Almost, uh, I don't know, almost 10 million, 8 million people have read it. And the movie's coming out May of 2017. And I remember when that book came out, it was dealing with the Trinity, and it had, it had God the Father as a black woman. It had Jesus as this T-shirt-wearing cool guy. It had the Holy Spirit as a woman. And, all, and I remember, you know, being so pharisaical, I, I'm not reading that trash. That's theologically inaccurate. And I remember Ricky Ryan, and, and I, was, I was sitting there picking fly poop out of pepper. That's just theologically not correct. There's no way I'm going to read that trash. And Ricky Ryan, the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, says, 
Rob, millions of people have read this. Why would they be drawn to this? Don't you want to know? So you can relate and at least have a comprehension? Are, are you getting millions of people to come to your church on Sunday? I said, no. Why don't you read the book? And I read the book. And listen, I struggled through it, but I saw it. I saw it. And it all came to an understanding in my life that when Matthew said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I sat with this man, Brad, and he was a pastor of a large church in this area at one point. And he said on a Sunday as he was going through Matthew 16 and he got to that place, he had the congregation stand up and turn and face an exterior wall. They turned and they faced an exterior wall. And he said, behold, the gates of hell. His point was this, what does a gate do? It keeps people in. And what are the gates? The gates are the four walls of the church. Oh, no, it isn't. No, yeah, it is. We redecorated the sanctuary. I didn't even know what they were going to do. I just said, yeah, go do it. I was gone most of the, and I, I saw some of the time lapse on it, the work that went into it and amazing stuff. And, and, the, and the, the week that I was gone, oh man, it just came in floods. Well, this is missing. And they didn't go, they missed all the time. I don't like them. I, you know what? I don't care. Yeah, I want a cross back. We're going to have a cross back. But other than that, I don't care. Some of you are upset that I don't care. Let me tell you why. We're monastic. This is our little safety zone. And I'm comfortable here. You took up the carpet. I don't like it. There's some things I like and I don't like about it, but I don't care. I, we, we set them free to enjoy it and do it, and that's what they did. And I, I do care, just not that much. My point is this. This is not the church. These are walls, and you enjoy the comfort of it, and you're, you, you, you're monastic in that you, you want the security of what you're familiar with. And there's a world out there waiting for you. And you have every reason not to access them. Well, they're publicans and they're drunkards and they're prostitutes and they're, yes. And the very first thing Matthew did when Jesus called him was host a party with every one of them. And the person who was in the middle of the party having a great time was the Lord. And I would ask you this. I have defined for you a person that you would have a difficult time hanging around with. I certainly would, Matthew. And I have heard from Countless people about my relationship with Bishop Huggins, my relationship with the LDS, my re- and, and I have a question for you. Who are you spending time with? We're the frozen chosen. And you've messed with my carpet. I, I, I say this because I have had some of the neatest conversations and I say LDS brothers and sisters because they're, they're pursuing faith and they have, they have a desire that is different theologically than me and you. Our Christology is different. I, we, we had a fun time yesterday talking about you have three heavens and no hell. I've got a heaven and a hell. Mine's a tougher cell. Right? 
And, and, and we understand that. There, there's, no, there's, there's no mixing any of that. They get it, and I get it. And, and I say, I would want you to proselytize me. You'd want me in your third heaven, and I want you out of hell. I want you in heaven with me. And if you love me, I would expect you to do everything in your power, and we'll contend. And I'm going to do everything I can. But in the meantime, we've got a community, and it's relational. And we, we, we use our religion and our religious attitude towards people who are not part of the fellowship to define why we don't have to go out there. They're not like us. Those people. It doesn't work in the body of Christ. If it did work in the body of Christ, Matthew would have never been an apostle. He was a publican. But Jesus saw a man. And my friend Brad Cummings, the, the man I had that really interesting conversation with, I was touched when he said this. And I, I won't go through all the players around the table because I don't remember it, but I, he was in a critical meeting at the production of the movie, The Shack, that comes out in May. And at one point, somebody of very, probably the most important person in the room, and, and they were in the Lionsgate Entertainment aspect, one of the most important people in the room says to him, or says to the group, we want to take out the Trinity from, from the thing. It's, it's, it's too, you know, let's change that. And everyone's, yes, 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 oh, of course. And Brad stands up, and he could have said, I wrote the book, and that's contrary to Scripture, and da-da-da. Be all things to all men that you might win some. He stands up and he says, you know, may I just say that when we wrote the book, we looked at the pantheon of gods, and there was only one who put on flesh and became man, Jesus. You take that out, and you're going to have another Noah and Exodus movie that'll be a flop, and you're going to lose everyone who's ever read the book, and it will have no significance whatsoever. At which point they said, okay, and he had that ability to make the movie the way it was supposed to be. Now, a lot of you could have said, what was he doing in Hollywood? And I would say, you see the face? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> That's where you're supposed to be. I was blessed to be invited by the LDS, three of my friends, to go to their, their school of Mormon studies at Claremont University. And they asked me to go and hear Elder Oaks, who's one of the apostles. There's 70, a quorum of the 70, 12 apostles, one as a president. And they invited me to go. And, and my three friends took me, and we were talking on the way there. And we got there a little late because we got lost. And we come in, and the place is packed, filled with LDS. They're all in suits and ties. I didn't have a tie. Thank God I had a sport coat. And we got there, and there was no seats, and we got to walk towards the front, and there were seats waiting for us. I sat down, oh, that's kind of neat. And Elder Oaks, I'd never heard of him until that day. Elder Oaks shares about religious liberty, and he does a very good presentation on it. And I'm moved by it. I would have been a little more firm, but he is wise and gentle, and I'm not. So he, he lays that out. And at the conclusion of it, people wanted to meet him. I mean, he's one of the apostles in the LDS. So they move forward. And, and my friend says, let's go meet him. And I said, I don't know. There's just a lot of people. And he goes, no, come on, let's go. So we're up there. And, and you hear everyone say, no, he's not greeting anyone. Thank you so much, everybody. Elder Oaks will not be meeting anyone today. And another friend walks through, and, and he's got all the certificates and badges and everything. He walks through, goes right on up to Elder Oaks, and he whispers and points over where I am. 
And Elder Oaks nods, and he says, and he points to me, and my friend starts to walk with me, and he goes, no, no, just you. Moses parts the Red Sea, <laughs> and the tieless sport coat wearing pagan, I guess, just kidding, walks through, and Elder Oaks, I, I go up, what a personable man, so kind, shakes my hand, and he says, I've been looking forward to meeting you. And I said, to, to be candid with you, before today, I didn't know who you were. And he was humble. He says, that's all right. And he said, I just finished testifying before the Mexican Senate. They don't allow clergy to run for office because of their revolution and the intricacy of the Catholic Church and the, the history of the nation. He said, they're reconsidering it, and they wanted a, a, a religious system with a hierarchy similar to the Catholic Church, which was LDS. And they asked me to testify, and I used you as a case study of a pastor politician. He says, and I just am so grateful to have the chance to meet you. I said, wow, it's good to meet you too. And on the drive home with some of my friends, we had a very interesting conversation. And, and backing up, I want to share this with you. I'm limited on time. Backing up, uh, another LDS friend had come to me a ways back. And he had said, can I borrow $1,500? I said, I don't loan money. I give it. And he came by, and I gave him the money. He was crying. And I got choked up. His wife was choked up. And off they went. And the only reason why I revisit that is not to pat myself on the back. I've received more than I've given in my lifetime. More, it just very simply. Which is sad. But I recounted it because as I'm driving back with, with my Mormon friends... We're talking about concepts of theology. And I said, you know, as I've spent time in your world that was a mystery to me before, I've come to realize that you grasp one of the most intense concepts in Christian theology. You grasp sanctification, set apart. You have set yourself apart to serve God you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't hang around with those who do. You're moral. Everyone I ever talked to speaks about the morality of, and the kindness of, of LDS. I said, you're exemplary in our community. Every time I have something I need to get done, you're there to help. I said, you're sanctified. You understand that. But here's an area that you're missing. Evangelicals understand justification just as if I'd never sinned. It's out of Ephesians where it says, you've been saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. It's this idea that I don't earn my salvation. Christ gave it to me. He puts his righteousness on my account. And I said, now the problem is, evangelicals have their get out of hell free card and they continue in sin so that grace may abound and they have no desire to walk in sanctification. They they just, hey, I got my get out of free card. I'm just going to continue. I'm going to heaven. I'm saved by grace through faith. And we continue in the same slop that we've been doing the entirety of our life. Whereas LDS, they understand sanctification. And I turned to them and I said, I told them the story about the person and the money. And I said, I just have one question for you. Why didn't they come to you?
Because if there's no justification, then sanctification can at times take on a role, even in evangelical worlds, take on a role of status and appearance. And I said, but he understood that Rob is a crazy nut who is saved by grace through faith. And he won't judge me because every time I've heard him speak, he talks about his past and the struggles. And the, and I, I know I'm going to find grace there. And I turned to my friends. I said, I would love it if the sanctification and the justification, now there's Christology and all kinds of other things, and if they come together. Uh, and you guys are going, well, that's never going to happen. Okay. When's the last time you were in a car having a neat conversation with some folks? I'm a different, I'm, leave it at that. This is, this is community. Now, we want to stay in the walls and throw the bombs over, but those are the gates of hell. And you're going to bomb all the Matthews of the world. No, you're going to bomb the Levi's and you're never going to see that God sees a man who is a gift. There are not enemies. There are opportunities. Do you realize that Jesus put on flesh and dwelt with man? He came into the cesspool of this world for every human being. And he hears their cries. And he has every tear they've ever cried in a bottle and every hair on their head numbered. And for us to sit in the comfort of our enclave and to cry their existence and to continue to remind them of their past and to lay that out instead of seeing a man or a woman created in the image of God who's an opportunity to love. I think of this because Paul said this. That little cry, Paul said this. No, I'm kidding. Paul said this to Timothy. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Right? However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So Paul starts his ministry by being honest. I'm the chief of sinners. And the only way I got here is by mercy. And Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to receive mercy, you've got to give it. And here's the problem. We sit in a room with the party that Matthew put on and we see the sludge come in. So different than us. Different beliefs, different political position, different ideologies, different incomes, eating different foods, different countries, different colors. And they sit down. You go into, you go into a, 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 a restroom in California and it says, don't put used toilet paper in the trash can. And you go, who would do that? Somebody who comes from a country where you can't flush the toilet and they're doing it out of kindness. That's who. But you can be disgusted by it and write it off. And when, when they come in and they sit down, you don't sit there and say, who are these people? They're creating the image of God. 
And in the midst of them is a physician. His name is Jesus, and they happen to be his patients. Do you want to help? Care for them? Or are you upset because they have a communicable disease? And sin is a communicable disease. We, we can influence one another to do awful things. Could you imagine a doctor who won't treat patients because they have a communicable disease? We'd all be dead. A doctor has to visit the patient. Has to go where they are. And the amazing thing about Jesus as a, as a great physician, he makes house calls. His diagnosis is always correct. And his prescription and remedy always works. And here's the greatest part. He never charges for his services. He paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. And you want to know a guy who understood debt? The tax collector. Because everyone owed him something. And he came face to face realizing he had amassed a debt he could never pay. And when Jesus said, follow me, and Jesus saw man, who was a gift, he left it all except for the pen and pursued the Lord and wrote about it. And here we are today. We're receiving it. I'll tell you what. A lot of people don't understand why I'd be a publican, why I'd be a public official. Politics is dirty. One of the loveliest people I've ever had the privilege of meeting is someone who is ideologically different than me. And that's Council Member Claudia Bilde La Pena. And I, I would say on the council, she's probably the person I think the most of. She's made me feel more welcome. Not that the others haven't, but she just has a way about her that's precious. She's thoughtful. To the point where my son entering into the Naval Academy, I wanted her to write a letter of recommendation for him to try to get accepted. I knew she'd be thoughtful. She took time to come to my son's court of honor before when I was running against one of her best friends. I, I was at the funeral service for one of our fallen firemen at Calvary Community. And I, I met Congresswoman Julia Brownlee. What are you doing talking to her? Having a delightful time. And what a kind lady. Engaging and thoughtful. Well, you better not let her ideology get on so I know in whom I believe. And you just keep throwing those bombs over the gates of hell. But folks... That's not what he intended. You go get neck deep in it. I'll leave you with this last story. And that's about Joe's story. That's his publishing name. He goes by Joe Salant, the amateur pharmacologist. He works for a group called Survivors. And the amazing thing about Joe is he goes out on the streets and he goes into the community colleges and he goes to places that most of the body of Christ never steps foot in. And he lovingly contends for the truth. 
And in the course of time while he does it, one of the folks that started Survivors, been doing it for a number of years, battle-scarred and weary and tired. And her, her life is not probably like ours. And we could sit and judge what she does. And yet Joe realized every day she goes into the thick of it. And he's there to serve her. And I would say one of the reasons why I had these two folks stand up is they're in the thick of it. Your family gets attacked. Your character gets attacked. Everybody has an opinion, and they let you know it. And you know you're doing it because you love the people of this community, and you want to make a difference. And the only way you succeed is that there are no enemies, there's only opportunities. And you love them. And you invite them. And you build the bridges to connect with them. Because if you don't, you just stay in the four walls until it collapses on you. And all darkness takes over. Behold, the gates of hell. They don't hold you. The door's open. Go out and get in the thick of it and go love on them. Love on them. Because out there, they may have a pass as a publican, but the beauty is there's a man and there's a woman created in the image of God that the Lord sees as a gift that one day will write a story that will bless your life. But how will they know unless someone tells them? Don't criticize me for the friendships I have. Go get your own. (laughs) Amen? And I have to tell you something. I'm preaching to the choir. You guys already get it. You already get it. And I'm blessed to be your pastor. Let's pray. Lord, I want to begin by saying thank you for Sandy and Angie. Lord, bless them, protect their families, encourage them. And Lord, thank you for your word that comforts us and guides us and directs us. Thank you for our our community. Thank you that you've called us to be a precious part of it and a chance to minister. And Lord, thank you that we endeavor to keep the union of the spirit and the bond of peace. But Lord, today we thank you for Matthew. Now, you didn't see a publican. You didn't see his past. You didn't see anything but a man created in your image who was a gift. And when he was so excited, he invited everyone just like him. And you enjoyed the party. Lord, let us do the same. Let us see men and women and not be religiously prejudiced to miss the opportunities that you put before our very eyes. We're not Pharisees or Sadducees. We're children of the king. We come to serve the physician. And he makes house calls. And we get to be his hands and his feet. Thank you, Lord, for that. Bless us, Lord, that we would honor you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen? God bless you guys. Let's stand and worship the Lord.